Our call to worship this morning comes to us from the book of Isaiah, chapter 19. I invite you to turn with me in your pew Bibles and follow along. It's on page 648 in your pew Bible, page 648. In this portion of the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, there is a series of prophecies to various kingdoms and peoples and individuals. And this particular one is in regards to the kingdom of Egypt. So reading in Isaiah 19, beginning with verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egypts and Assyrians will worship together. In that day Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing upon the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Eric, lead us in song and praise. The gospel reading comes to us from Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, great is your faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed that self-same hour. It's good to be in this house of worship with you. Um, I think it was a couple of years ago that we were here with you. Um, basically, uh, a quick overview as to what we're involved with and what we have been doing. Um, the mother ministry of, of our operation is known as a sure harvest. Uh, we are one of the supporting ministries of gospel outreach in Washington State and also the General Conference in Maryland. Um, our call and our emphasis of the ministry is to reach out to the sectors and to the population groups in and outside of America that the church at large is having a difficult time penetrating, which is predominantly the Islamic harvest or the Islamic challenge. And for the last three years, we have been producing and airing television programs on variety of, of networks, satellite, cable broadcasters, very diverse from one another. And it's so interesting how God has worked through non-Adventist entities also to broadcast the Advent message to the Islamic world. Um, 
my question usually before sharing further of this report is how many of you have Muslim friends and acquaintances and co-workers? Um, some of you do. How many of you are informed as to who Muslims are? How many of you have information about Islam? As I was sharing this morning, um, the greatest challenge that the Christian church has ever been faced with is winning Muslims to Christ. And the challenge and what it poses to the Christian church makes Rome and the Roman Empire a day at the beach. And in terms of some realities, in terms of some statistics to share with you, globally, there are 100,000 missionaries. If every missionary out there from all churches, all denominations, have all the missionaries on the ground, there is about 100,000 missionaries out there. Do you know if they were to win the world by missionaries, how many people would a single missionary have to reach out to? 60,000 people. So every missionary should reach out to 60,000 people, and right now it's about 63,000 people to finish the Great Commission. With those numbers, do you think the Great Commission could be finished soon? With one missionary reaching out to 60,000 people. Have you seen anything like that? Do you think that's a possibility? The answer is no. We don't have to think too much, too deep into that. But let me ask you a question. Do you know how could an Islamic country, Saudi Arabia, the world's strictest, most fundamental Muslim country, that if you are caught as a Muslim, if you are caught carrying the Bible, the same hand that carries the Bible can be chopped off without a court, or without a trial. If you are to be known, if you're a Muslim, and if you do carry a Bible in your hand, that hand gets chopped off. And yet in America, we have, uh, the average Christian home has about 10 Bibles, but they're pretty much collecting dust. Do you know why? George Barna, in his research, last year, December of last year, he did a consensus, he did a research, as to how many or what percentage of Christians in America read the scriptures on daily basis. So there were 100,000 people that participated in this, in this report, of which about, if I'm not mistaken, 7,000 were Seventh-day Adventists. Question was, how many of you read the scriptures on daily basis? And the percentage was 19%. Of the 100,000 people, 81,000 did not read their scriptures on daily basis. And yet, in Islamic countries, people literally give up their arms carrying this Bible. Now, let me ask you a question. How can, in a country of strict fundamentalism, 15,000 people accept the Advent message and start an underground church? in Saudi Arabia. How do you think that's possible? Well, I pose the question. Um, missionaries? No. 
Evangelists, no, no. Um, you don't go into these countries, pitch out a tent, or rent a hall and ask Sean Boonstrow or Mark Finley to do an evangelistic series. Um, the evangelist is not going to hit the ground um, in these countries. So no missionaries, no evangelism, no conferences, no pastors, no Bibles. How do you think 15,000, as we speak today, 15,000 Muslims accepted the Advent message and are having underground worship services in Saudi Arabia. How do you think that happened? Any ideas? No, internet is pretty condensed and pretty suppressed in countries like that. No. Huh? No. You're getting close, but be specific. Do you know how there are 15,000 plus underground Seventh-day Adventists in Saudi Arabia today? Angel Gabriel. Now a lot of us would say, yeah, right. Angel Gabriel. Well, I'll share this and then we'll, we'll continue with the worship service. In November 2005, only six years ago, a Saudi businessman, a jeweler, is leaving his jewelry store for the noon prayer. And they leave their jewelry store unattended. No one is going to touch anything in those stores. Because if they're caught, the fingers, the arms, the limbs will be chopped off if they're caught stealing. So security is pretty tight and pretty I will, well established in Saudi Arabia. They don't have to worry about their stores being vandalized. They go to noon prayer. As he is approaching his automobile, a fire-like explosion takes place in front of him. He gets third-degree burns, hair and all that. He falls back unconscious. A few minutes, few seconds later, he gets up. The wall of fire is in front of him. But he notices that nothing has exploded. His automobile is there. Nothing is burning. But there's a wall of fire in front of him. Massive wall of fire. This man said, all I can think of was to ask, who are you? He says, for the life of me, I will never know why I was talking to the fire. But he said, I asked him, who are you? And the answer came from the wall of fire. Ana Malech Jebrail. I am Angel Gabriel. He says, the only thing I remember from this encounter was commandments of God, testimony of Jesus. Kalamatullah, Iman al-Masih. And he says, the only thing I can remember from this horrific experience, this voice that came to me was commandments of God, testimony of Jesus. He says, I am conscious now. He goes to the hospital. They clean him up and all that. He does not report it to anyone. He's asking himself, what does that mean? Commandments of God, testimony of Jesus. He says, I've heard of Jesus, but only in the Quran. But he says, somehow I felt compelled that I have to get a Christian Bible. But we know what the 
ramifications of that is. He's a Saudi jeweler. He's a wealthy man. He pays $6,000 to a Filipino medical missionary to smuggle a Bible for him. He says, I have no idea why I got this Bible in Arabic language. He said, but I knew somehow that what this angel told me could be found in this book. We know where this phrase is. Commandments of God, testimony of Jesus. Where is it? At the end of the book. He doesn't know it. He starts reading it from the beginning of the book. Goes through the whole scripture. And because of his conviction, now there are 15,000 underground Wahhabi Muslim Sabbath keepers. You know who the Wahhabis are? The same dynasty that gave birth to Osama bin Laden. Some places the Lord himself intervenes. And my curiosity is why isn't he making visits in America? Why is he appearing to visions and dreams to Muslims? Well, that's something we'll discuss during the sermon. Good to be with you this morning. What do I do? Do I continue? Do I? Carry out. Okay. <coughs> Before I do, can I, can I play a piece of music for you? Please. Can I play a piece of piano music? Please. As the deer panteth for the waters, so does my soul pant after you.
A very unusual incident, indeed, in the life of Christ. And, you know, sometimes we think, well, some of these incidences are isolated, they're back in history, and, yeah, we can learn things, we can kind of pick things from these incidences, but when it comes to application, and when it comes to the real implications of some of these reports, some of these incidences, we're having a little bit of difficulty. And what do I mean by this? By and large, Jesus did not travel far from his birthplace. He did not venture off into lands of foreigners, you know, different countries and so forth. He pretty much stayed in Palestine, in Israel. A very unique situation and occasion demanded that he would kind of venture off into a country that is known as Lebanon today. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, if you have your scriptures, we read this morning, our brother read it for us this morning, and let's see if the Lord's Word has a message for us this morning regarding what we just read. If you have your scriptures, Matthew 15, and I'm reading from verse 21. New Living Translation is the version that I'm using. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if we can just have a skim reading of this, we would say, okay, it's a territory, and Jesus is um, traveling through this area. For First of all, he's now traveling. Mark adds some description to this incident. There's two places that this is recorded, in Matthew and in Mark. Mark adds a little bit of information. He says, Jesus was tired and was trying to take a break from his ministry work. So what does he do? Unknown to this region, he kind of slips into Lebanon. And he not, does not want to be known, and he wants just privacy. So he takes some of his disciples, and he just slips into Lebanon. This Tyre and Sidon has a great significance for a Jew of the time. Israel hated this territory. To them, Tyre and Sidonians were satanic. So satanic that the king of Tyre at one point considered himself the Almighty God. And it's so interesting that in the book of Ezekiel, prophet Ezekiel refers to the king of Tyre as who? Satan himself. Tyronians were as pagan as you can get. So this land, according, you know, from a Jewish perspective, was a cursed land, an evil demonic land. And what is this Jesus, Rabbi, doing in this area? Why is he taking a break? And why, why go to this area? There's more to it than meets the eye. A Gentile woman. Mark adds another description to this. He says, a Syro-Phoenician woman. The land is satanic, demonic, a pagan woman. Matthew says Canaanite. Mark also adds more description to it. He says, a Syro-Phoenician. You cannot get any more pagan than this woman in this territory. 
comes to Jesus, she finds out that this man is in Lebanon. Now, whether she chased him, whether she followed, whether she, however, we don't have that detail. However, we have one crucial detail. This pagan woman calls Jesus son of David. Have mercy on my daughter. She is possessed by a demon and she is being tormented continuously. How does pagan woman, how does this Syrophoenician living in Tyre know who Jesus is? And she calls him by his correct title, son of David, Bar David, even to this day. The Jews, Orthodox Jews, Hasidic, you know, all the Jewish nation at large does not accept Jesus as the promised Messiah. They're still waiting for the Bar David, the son of David. They're still waiting for him. But this woman 2,000 years ago, a pagan woman, calls Jesus by his correct name. Son of David, have mercy on my daughter. How do the disciples respond to this? The disciples are pretty much the, the celebrities by now. They're doing miracles. They're casting out demons. Peter took a few steps on water that we know before he drowned. So they do have a sense of importance. How did they respond to this woman's need, pleading, and begging. The disciples told him, Oh Rabbi, please heal her daughter. Please deliver her daughter from demon possession. Is that what they told him? What did they say? Tell her to go away. She is bothering us with all her begging. She's a nuisance. She's embarrassing us. Send her away. They don't say, heal her and send her away. No, just send her away. Now, to add insult to injury, how does Jesus respond? Verse 23, Jesus gave her no reply. But I'm calling you by your right name. I know who you are. Jesus is quiet. The disciples are indignant. Get rid of her. Sometimes we do act like the disciples. Sometimes we do act indifferent to the people who are coming to our master, but because they don't belong to our group, they don't belong to us. We want them rid of. Jesus is quiet. He does not answer to this woman. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to the woman, after her continuous begging and pleading. By incidental, how many of you have had incidences or experience of demon possession? Can I see a show of hands? One person back there. Was it personal or somebody you knew or who? Somebody was it, was it a pleasant experience? No, it was very 
It's a horrific experience. Incidentally, demon possession, if unattended, always results in the victim's death. Always. We won't get into the details of it. Jesus knows what torment is involved with demon possession. Why is he quiet? Why is he not answering? Verse 24. Jesus still adds to this, and he says this. Lady, I was not sent to you guys. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. How do you like them apples? You come and beg him. You call him by his correct name. He is. He is the Messiah. Son of David means Messiah. He's quiet the first time. He does not respond. Maybe he wanted to know how the disciples would act. And the disciples sure couldn't care less. The second route keeps pleading, keeps begging. And Jesus says, lady, my blessings are not for you. They're for this motley crew here. I'll come back to this. We'll get into details of this. Let me ask you a question. If you had a situation, a circumstance in your life, and you came to Christ, and you begged Him in prayer, and He is quiet, but just use your imagination. If Christ was here, and you had the circumstances, and you had need of Him doing a miracle, you came to Jesus, you told him, Jesus, Christ, Son of God, Almighty, Word of God, please heal my daughter. And he is quiet. How would you feel? And if the people around Jesus are unattentive, they could not care less about your circumstance, how would you feel like? Would you, would you feel intimidated? Would you feel uncomfortable? But if you kept begging... And he turns to you and says, oh, Dear lady, thank you for calling me by my right name. Thank you for paying such respect. But my blessings, my miracles, they're not for you. They're not for the Chicanos. They're only for the Asians. They're not for the Americans. They're only for the Germans. How would you feel like it? How would you feel like it? Would you stick around and ask more and plead more? Would you? I wouldn't. I would get intimidated. Forget you and your miracles and your people. Keep it. I don't want it. Is Jesus intimidating this woman? Well, it seems for a long time, since I was yay high, when I would read these passages, I say, something's wrong with this picture. Jesus should not have acted this way. But the plot gets thickened. Notice what happened. She keeps begging the Bible says in verse 25, she came and worshipped him this time, begging him, Lord, help me. The word worship, and according to the information that we had, means this. After this so-called quiet and just ignoring, the disciples' attitude, the second response, this is not for you, Instead of her running, instead of her turning her back and insulting him and all, the Bible says she worshipped him. Do you know what it means? It means she fell to the ground and she started putting dust 
under her, on her hair, on her head. Please heal her. I'm not going to take no for an answer, Rabbi. I'm not going to take no for an answer. She worshipped him. And guess how Jesus responds? Is Jesus impressed? Is Jesus turning around and saying, Oh, this is what I like. She's worshipping me. Guess what he does? Verse 26. Jesus responded, It is not right to take the bread of children and throw it to the dogs. How would you like that? First, he's quiet. Means he is just ignoring you. Second, he says, it's not for you. Third, he calls her a dog. Is that something you would expect from the Son of God? For a long time, I had difficulty with this passage. I know the Jews of then and the Jews of now. They have a term for pagans. Goim pretty much means defiled. In other words, dogs. So according to Jewish orthodoxy, to the Hasidic Jews, pagans, non-Jews, are equal to dogs. Well, my question is, why is Jesus joining this bandwagon? Why is he calling her a dog? I'm not going to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And I have no doubt the disciples are just like, that's right. That's right. Let her have it. Let her have it. And they're just on cloud nine. And it's so interesting. There is no response from the disciples anymore from what the first time they responded. Get rid of her. Before I go into the details of this, the Bible, or the books at large, do not, in general, do not capture the facial expressions, you know, sarcasms that could be involved in this, but maybe we can look at it this way. Maybe this woman comes to Jesus, falls before him, heal my daughter. Maybe Jesus wants to know how would we respond? How would the disciples respond? So he's quiet. And the disciples make a royal mess. Not only they don't care for her need, they're aware of their self-importance. Please, Rabbi, get rid of her. Okay? Jesus goes the second step. And so does this pagan woman. She goes the next step with pleading and begging further. Again, this is not too far-fetched from, from imagination. Maybe Jesus has this sarcastic approach to this lady and says, Well, lady, I did not come for people like you. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. Maybe he has this in mind to bring the disciples to their senses. Look at the need of this woman. Maybe, maybe not. But the third route, the third step that this woman goes to opens up a huge window. It turns out to be one of the hallmarks of the whole entire scriptures. In what way? 
When we read it in English, the passage says, it is not right to throw the bread of the children to the dogs. When we go to Greek, when we read the word dog, the word for dog in Greek, even to this day, is skilon, full-grown dog. But when you read the scriptures in the Greek passage, it doesn't say skilon. It says kinarion. And you look up the dictionary, the word kinarion means puppies. That changes the whole picture. Would you like to be called a bear, you gentlemen here? Would you like to be called a bear or a teddy bear? That changes the whole picture, right? And you read this passage, you say, okay, Jesus said, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the puppies. And then I started nosing around. There's got to be something to this. And this is what we know today. Syrophoenicians, Greeks in origin, had a tradition. They were in the habit of keeping pet dogs, puppies, for their children. The wealthy echelon had that tradition. They also had this tradition at dinner time. At dinner table, the children will sit on the sides. There was always, for the most part, rectangular tables. Children will sit on the sides. The wife or the wives will sit across, and the husband will sit at the end of the table. Dinner was still on as long as the children were eating. Even the adults, if they would finish, they would still wait till the children would finish up their eating. They did not use utensils, forks, and spoons. They used pieces of bread to dip it in a stew and, and stuff. As long as the children were eating, dinner was on. Nobody would leave the table, not even the adults. But when the daddy or the mommy would notice that the children are not eating anymore, daddy would take a piece of small bread from the portion of one of the children. He will take and wipe out his own plate. And instead of eating it, he will throw it to the puppies that were playing around under the table, signaling that dinner is over. This was familiar to Jesus and to this woman. In other words, Jesus is using a tradition that, the Greek, that this Greek woman can relate to. As soon as you come across this, then you realize Jesus is in no way intimidating this woman. Not by far. He is setting an example. And how this comes to a climax is this. First, Jesus is quiet does not respond. He wants to know how would the disciples respond. They fail miserably. Second, he tells this woman, I was sent only to this people, to this group of people. He wants to know how she would react because he is about to set an example. This is, a, this is basically a stage work. Jesus wants to know how persistent how serious this woman is when she calls him son of David. This woman does not care about her reputation. She does not care if she's offended. 
humiliated. She, she looks at it from that perspective. Jesus is not. Yet she passes through the second step. She goes to third step. I know you were sent for them. I know. But Jesus now shifts the whole focus onto something that this woman can relate to. And what is he saying? Meaning, using this example, this tradition, the bread, and throw it to the puppies, all Jesus is telling to this woman, your turn will come, but not yet. Yet this woman, who turns out to be one of the boldest examples of faith in the whole scriptures, a pagan woman, and if I may use the term, a non-Christian woman sets the example. She comes back with a shocker. You know, I know this is not politically correct to say Jesus was shocked in his ministry, but he was shocked. Do you remember an incident that Jesus was shocked? God Almighty in the flesh was shocked. One incident was the centurion, the Italian military officer. Do you remember the incident? Mm-hmm. Or okay. The incident was the centurion comes or brings people with him to Jesus. I have a servant, and he's a valuable man. He is just a gem. He is dying. He's sick. Could you please heal him? Jesus says, no problem. Let's go. As soon as he starts off, the man says, don't move. Now, just say it. In Greek, Jesus' response, translated today's American English, is this. What? <laughs> just say it. Don't move. Jesus turns around and says, Even in my own house, Israel, I have not seen anything like this. How does this man know who I am? Just say it. Don't move. Jesus goes, Go. It's done. He says, That very hour, that servant was healed. Another lady suffering from 12 years of bleeding. You remember that incident? Comes and just says, as long as I catch this corner of his garment, I don't care what happens, as long as I just touch it, just touch it. Touches it and she is healed. Jesus looks around. And the disciples are like, what's wrong with you, man? All these people are rubbing shoulders. I mean, they're hitting you and everything. What's wrong with you? Who hit me? Who touched me? In this incident, she comes back with a shocker. I know it's not my turn. I know it's the dinner thing. Yes, I'm familiar with the puppies and all that stuff. What about the crumbs falling off the table? Jesus goes, what? I don't care what I have to do. Even if it's the little crumbs, I'll pick them. I want my daughter healed, and I know you can heal her. 
I know it's you. I'm calling you by your right name. Do you know why? Because Syrophoenicians, Greeks, Canaanites, they knew also who the true God was. In fact, we know for a fact, Syrophoenicians had multiple gods. Yes, they were pagans, no doubt about it. But do you know, one of the gods that they worshipped was called Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. Do you know what that is? Jehovah. How did they know about Jehovah? One of the gods that they mentioned that they worshipped in their multiple gods was Sha'ed. Do you know what the word Sha'ed means? Savior. And it's so interesting, in the history of Syrophoenicians, you read that Sha'ed would save them from the venom of a dragon. Does that sound familiar to the scriptures? This woman, though pagan, though outside of the circle of God's people, she knew exactly who Jesus was. My dear friends, the equivalent, the parallel of this religion today is Islam. They have the knowledge of the true God, only this much. But with that little much, with that little much, they turn the world upside down if they are given the chance. In the country of Iran, December 2008, we were involved with a covert consensus with CBN, Christian Broadcasting Network, who was run by Pat Robertson. He was gracious enough who aired our television shows for two years with no charge. In Iran, we did a consensus, covert, secret, as to what is the impact of Christian satellite broadcasting in the country of Iran, 80 million people population, the world's most fundamental Shiite Islam country. And we found out this, that in one year, 874,000 Iranians accepted Christ as their savior just by watching satellite Christian television program. 874,000. Can you imagine that? Willing to die for this faith. Jesus appears in visions and dreams to these people. And some of these people, when they call in response to our shows that they're calling, I tell some of these people, I say, I'm envious of you. We're the ones bringing the gospel, and yet Jesus appears to you. Why isn't he appearing to us? Reason is we're too comfortable. We think God is a Seventh-day Adventist. He is not. He is God. And he has to use the church of the Seventh-day Adventist to set an example to the rest of the world of what it is like to believe in Jesus. And yet the disciples saw Jesus, walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, saw him raising the dead in front of their eyes. And yet a pagan woman comes and shocks the daylights out of them. How did she do this? She did not give up. She had this much information about Jesus, and that little information took her to the pinnacle of this faith experience. She says, how about those crumbs? In other words, you give me my miracle, I'm not going away. And Jesus says, your faith is awesome. Go. It's yours. 
And the disciples picked a lesson from this. Later on, we learn in the life of Peter. He says, it's enough that we spend so much time on piddly, non-essential, nonsensical stuff. Just don't put any burdens on the people anymore. Just tell them Jesus raised from the dead. Tell them to believe in Jesus and they will have life eternal. Don't make it complicated for the people. In this chapter, chapter 15 of Matthew, it is so interesting. This incident is sandwiched between two other incidences. Right before this, first part of chapter 15, it's the Jewish hierarchy, the Jewish Pharisees, the Jewish radicals that come to Jesus and say, why aren't your disciples cleaning up their hands like this that we're all used to? Why are they eating without washing hands and all that stuff? They were even killed, willing to stone Jesus because his disciples were not washing properly. Okay? Talk about nonsensical. After this incident, it is the incident of 5,000 men and how many more thousand of women and children that are stranded in the desert with no food. Jesus wants to know how we respond. You saw how this woman responded. She got her miracle. You saw it? Yes. Okay, now let's see how you would apply it. Thousands of people in the desert, no food. And the disciples are scrambling. Where are we going to get food? How are we going to get food? Jesus says, you feed them. Are you kidding? We can't feed these people. It takes one year of wage. We all have to work full time to pay this. Are you kidding? And Jesus says, didn't you just see that woman's attitude, behavior? Why can't you take the same step? Bring me food. Two pieces of fresh, you know, fish and, you know, whatever pieces of bread. And the thousands were fed. Why is it that the greatest manifestations of faith are exhibited by non-believers? Have you noticed? It was the wise men from the east that came and saw Jesus. Well, two years have passed since his birth and his people are deep sleep. A centurion religious, a centurion general sees Jesus and says, Don't walk, just say it. I know you can say it. I know you can do it just by a word. And so this woman does not give up. Why are these incidences here for this reason? You might be going some, through some horrendous experience in your life. You might think that Jesus is quiet. You turn to your brothers and sisters. They're not much of a help. Sad to say, but incidences happen. You go to next step. You see other people around you blessed. You see other people receive their blessings, their promotions, their health, and it's not happening to you. You feel like God's blessings are for other people and they're not for you. Maybe Jesus wants you to go the third step. Jesus says, maybe you'll have to wait. And you seem the world, to you, seems like the world is going by in light speed and it's not happening to you. It's just not, why me? Why me? Why me? Maybe Jesus is saying, look for the crumbs. Even the little things could be an answer for your miracle. This woman set an example, in my humble opinion, very simple. She's not mentioned ever since. That's the only incident. And she's not remembered ever since. But Jesus used this opportunity to set an example for us. Keep your eye open. Maybe other people, maybe non-believers can give you, can teach you something about the Jesus that we know.
I'll, I'll close with this true story. <coughs> in Oklahoma, well actually, North Carolina, um, elderly lady has the habit of every morning coming up on her porch, five in the morning, raising her hands in the sky and says, Praise the Lord! And she goes back home and starts her day, five in the morning. Every morning she comes to her porch and she lets out this big old praise and gets back home and starts her day. Next door, a yuppie graduate from Stanford and his wife, atheist, moves in. So, first day, five in the morning, they're deep sleep. This lady comes out and says, praise the Lord, she screams out. So he comes out and looks at the porch and see this old lady. She's yelling out, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. She puts up, he puts up with it for about a week. He gets sick of it. One morning, this lady, as she's about to let out this praise, praise, and he comes out on her porch and says, Lady, there is no Lord. Enough. We want to sleep. So she goes back home. Next day, same thing. Praise the Lord. So this guy is just losing patience. What am I going to do with this woman? He notices the following day, she comes on her porch and she lets out a different form of praise. She says, Oh Lord, I'm out of food. I have no food for the day. And she goes back home. So this man is thinking, thinking, I have to prove to her that there is no Lord, there is no God. She goes, he goes, sends his wife to the grocery, go buy like $100 worth of groceries. Put it in front of her door. Would you do that? She does. Puts it in front of her door. The next morning, this lady comes out, opens the door, sees all his groceries. She says, praise the Lord! And as he and she finishes the praise, the man comes on her porch and says, lady, there is no Lord. I bought these groceries for you. It's my money that bought it for you. There is no Lord. She looks and says, Praise the Lord! And he made the devil to pay for it. <laughs> Simple act of faith. Though it might not come from people who would expect. But you know, the Bible pays attention to the manifestations of faith. Even of people who were not part of the promise, who were not part of the heritage and lineage to Abraham. Yet, with this much exposure to Jesus, they knew who he was. Can we learn from this Syrophoenician pagan woman? Lord bless you and keep you.